Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself. Learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, boy, do I have a treat in store for you. My good friend and client, New York Times bestselling author Karen White is my guest on this episode of the Relevate podcast. For those of you who know Karen and her books, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. If you're not familiar with her books, I encourage you to check out her voluminous body of work that includes 25 novels at karen-white.com. She is one amazing storyteller and one of my favorite people. I think after listening to this conversation, you'll see why. Karen White, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Thank you, Rena. I'm happy to be here. It's just such a pleasure to know you as a friend and have you as a client and think people are really going to enjoy getting to know you more, not only the person who's a writer, but but the amazing person, fun person that you are. I think it's going to be a really amazing conversation. So thanks again for taking time out of your very, very busy schedule to have a chat with me. It's a pleasure. So let's just start off. Tell everybody a little bit about who is Karen White. Oh, boy. Um, Well, I'm very old, so I I can't tell the whole story. But um, uh, yeah, so I guess primarily I'm a, a wife and I'm a mother of two, actually four, if you count my two fur babies, oh, yes, um, <laughs> Quincy and Sophie, who my real children are like are pretty jealous of, but my kids don't live at home anymore. They're, they're grown, yes. su- successfully launched into the Woo. world. And, um, that's uh, an accomplishment. Yeah. Oh yes. And yes. You know, I, I thought if they survived me as their mother through teenagerhood, you know, and they're still breathing and kicking, I did a good <laughs> job. But yeah, I mean, they, they're good kids. They've always been good kids. So I can't take full credit for that. Um, I've uh, lived in Georgia for 27 years, though I married a Yankee, who I actually met in London, because nice. that's where I was living at the time. My father, both my parents are from Mississippi. Uh, my father's family, actually, we come from a long line of Southerners. They've been in the country for over 200 years. Oh. Um, they're actually, they were Florida settlers, if you can imagine what that mm. was like. They came over from England, Ireland, France, Germany, to North Carolina, oh, and Scotland, uh, to North Carolina, South Carolina, kind of settled there. So I do have roots in Charleston that I recently found out, which was mm, kind of interesting, cool. considering what I write. And then yeah. they sort of migrated westward to Florida. Um, and my hat's off to my to my ancestors, because if you imagine what Florida is like now in August, and that's with uh, pest control, with highways, with air conditioning, wow. um, you know, if you can only imagine what it was like to settle 
the state of Florida before any of those things. Mm. I'm just like, they were either crazy, which is possible, or <laughs> or or just, my gosh, my hat's out off to them because I don't know if I've, I've got sure. that in me. That's just, no, yeah, okay. it's hard for me to go to, go to a beach house in, in Florida in August that has air conditioning, you know, and a pool. So I just can't yeah. even imagine. But anyway, but my, um, my mother's family is Italian. She is second generation Italian from Sicily. Very cool. Um, but I think her great, her grandfather uh, got off on um, the wrong boat in New Orleans <laughs> and, and then sort of migrated towards uh, Mississippi. So every Italian restaurant you would ever make meet or eat in, in uh, Mississippi, they are relatives of mine, just so you know. So yes, very interesting kind of background. <laughs> so and even though my parents both went to the University of Southern Mississippi in Hattie's, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, um, my dad says that's where they met. My mother says no, they didn't meet until they were both working for um, Humble Oil and Refining Company, mm. which became Standard Oil, which became Esso, which became Exxon. Exxon. <laughs> um, and my mother was in the um, secretarial pool. My father was one of the um, controllers or the accountants, I guess, at that time. Mm. And uh, they carpooled, and uh, that's to oh. work each day, and and that's that's how they met, and that as they say is history. Wow. Um, but um, and they're both still alive. They're both still alive, and they've been married how long? Yeah, sixty years. But uh, my father's job with Exxon took us kind of really exciting places, um, and uh, including uh, Venezuela. Uh, my dad worked in Manhattan for Exxon headquarters for a while, so we lived in northern New Jersey. Very exotic. Uh, and then Venezuela. <laughs> then um, we lived in um, London for seven years. That's kind of where I did middle school and high school for me. Mm. And How a year post, fun. yeah, and a year um, at post high school where I worked in London over the summertime, which was amazing. And then they moved to the Netherlands. And then my dad retired. And, uh, and then they decided Nashville, Tennessee, why not? Um, the it was south enough for them because they wanted mm -hmm. to return to their southern roots, but without the real heat and humidity. Nashville has a, a pretty, uh, pretty much temperate climate compared to most of the south, and you're near the mountains and, and all that. And um, they really enjoyed it. They were there for about twenty years, um, something like that. And um, yeah, so I have three brothers, no sisters. That was sort of the the sadness of my life was that my <laughs> parents did not see fit to give me a sister. Because yeah. my mother had four sisters, and I just loved, and uh, and her four sisters all had daughters, you know, and uh, so yeah. those cousins were like my sisters when we would visit, mm -hmm. and um, but yes, yeah, so I have three brothers. I'm the only girl, and that's and like I said, I married a Yankee. My best friend in high school, Claire White, who is now Claire Cobelt, and um, she came to the American School in London one day, and we became best friends. And she was telling me about her. Her, her brothers were like so nice to her, unlike my own. And I'm just like, those oh. brothers don't, can't possibly exist. And, but the older one is who I was really interested in because he was at West Point. You know, oh, she yeah. showed me pictures in his uniform. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and, um, and then they were, I lived, you know, on Regent's Park in, in London. And she lived, her parents lived out in Wimbledon in the suburbs. And uh, my husband, who I like to say is much older than me, he's three years, but he was already <laughs> in college when I met him. And he was visiting his parents, and I happened to be visiting Claire at the time in Wimbledon, and um, it was a weekend, 
and um, I, I guess it was summer summer break from college, from school because so he wasn't the older brother. No, he okay. was not. He was the second brother, and um, so he had spent all night um, in a ticket line to get tickets for Center Court um, at Wimbledon. I think it was Borg and Jimmy Connors playing it, or oh. or McEnroe. It's like one one of the mm-hmm. old greats from way back when, yeah. you know, and. And he was in line. Now, we always got, my family always got tickets because we lived there so we could enter the lottery. And we always hit the lottery and got like amazing tickets at Wimbledon. But this year, yes, but uh, this was for his family and he'd spent the night. (laughs) It was not very attractive. And Claire and I brought him breakfast. And, and that's how I met Tim. And um, and then once he'd cleaned up or whatever and he was back at the apartment, I was lip syncing to Paradise by the dashboard lights when he walked into the room. <laughs> and he wasn't impressed either. So not an auspicious beginning. But that's how I met my husband, my Yankee husband, because he's from New York. He was born in New York, actually, and, and um, grew up in uh, Connecticut. And um, But my, my parents forgave me for marrying a Yankee because he's such an awesome guy. <laughs> And Good thing. Yeah, yeah. you were how old when you met him? 16. No, yes. I didn't know you were that young. And now I'm 29. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> not really. But um, but yeah, so I know. Isn't that incredible? Wow. And she's still a baby. He finally forgave his sister for introducing us. <laughs> but um, and you and Claire are still best friends. Yeah. Which so, that's yeah super as a matter cool. of fact, we're going to be spending a week together in Florida um, in a month. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. And you know, she was my maid of honor. I was her matron of honor. Um, we're godparent, godmothers oh, to all of our children. So cool. It is neat. It's nice having that kind of a life. So even though, you know, God didn't give me sisters, uh, he did. He did really, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Claire is really, because she, she has two brothers. So um, we were definitely each other's sisters that we were meant to have. Cool. And another some type of Mick Jagger connection? When you oh, were... yeah. When we, when we lived in London, we lived in a really cool building. It was um, Edwardian. And it has a very interesting history. So when it was first built, it was built to uh, basically be uh, apartments for uh, the Irish uh, servants of the wealthy homes in Regent's Park, of which there's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful homes. And then somehow it kind of morphed into really high real estate. I mean, I looked at some of the flat prices <laughs> recently, and I'm just, I was just floored. There's, I mean... Um, but I know in the seventies, Mick Jagger lived in the penthouse apartment. And while I lived there, um, Cliff Richards, who, um, not Keith Richards, Cliff Richards, who is uh, a musician and is a famous musician in his own right. When you walk by his flat on the ground floor, you could see all the gold records, um, uh, cool. hanging on the wall. He might still live there. He lived there the entire seven years that we lived there. Um, and, uh, Joan Collins of dynasty fame oh, because yeah. her daughter, Tara Newley, I went to the American school with me, and sometimes we would walk, um, if we left at the same time, we would walk to the tube station together. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know that's who her mother was until graduation, and there's Joan Collins, and these skinny, skinny jeans, and I'm like, wait, why is Joan Collins here? And then I realized, oh, that's her daughter, and I had no idea that she lived in the building with me at that time, and that was her daughter, so that's how clueless I was, but... um, but yeah, a lot of, you know, uh, other uh, famous people, but, um, and us, you know, and um, we lived in a, a third floor flat. It was absolutely beautiful. We needed a big flat because there were six of us. 
And um, luckily, Exxon subsidized our living because <laughs> I don't know how my dad could have afforded that. Um, okay. And we all went to the American School in London and St. John's Wood. So um, it's a great location. And, and it's very high real estate now. I think when we lived there, it was still, you know, a very uh, kind of tony place to live. And But now it's like completely, you know, ridiculous. Like, yeah. It's yeah. basically Russian, Russian oligarchs who live there now. <laughs> and they have like... Whatever s- that is. Serious, serious um, guard gates now to get just mm. to the building. And it was very weird when I took my kids a few years ago to see it. I wanted to get a picture of them in front of yeah. Harley House where I lived. And, you know, there were guys with like uh, guns, you know, and, and we had to show uh-huh. our passports. And then we were only allowed five minutes and we could only stand on the, you know, in front of the front door and... Yeah, it was very weird. Very but, weird. Yeah. Well, and it was during that time that you love you discovered your love of reading. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Um, I mean, or was it? It, before it, that? it actually started before that when we we're living in Venezuela, and I I um, just went to a library with a friend uh, just to get out of the heat because <laughs> it was air conditioned. Because Venezuela, it's on the equator; it's always hot. Yeah. And I'm just sit standing, you know, standing around waiting for her to pick a book, and the librarian and I was nine at the time because my my dad was a big reader of nonfiction my mom you know read her ladies magazines that was it so you know not a lot of books in the house lots of uh, Winston Churchill and um, things like that uh, nonfiction historical books uh, for my dad but so you know it wasn't like I wasn't known to pick up a book and read until that day in the library and the librarian saw me just kind of hanging out she's like well gosh, don't you want a book? What do you read? And I told her I didn't read, and she turned completely gray at that moment, and then turned around and pulled off the bookshelf from the bookshelf um, a Nancy Drew book, uh, The Secret of the Old Clock, and that kind of got me started, um, Mm. because then I had something to do while I was hiding from my brothers while they were trying to put, you know, (laughs) roaches down my back and stuff like that, and poisonous frogs on my head, which they enjoyed doing. Yeah, So, so, but when I lived in London, I discovered the book Gone with the Wind. Oh, yeah. Because I saw it was seventh grade. And it's funny because my daughter Megan waited until she was in seventh grade to read it because she wanted to read it at the same time I did. She's also a huge reader. And um, I remember uh, Linda, Linda Schwab was her name. And she was reading it in seventh grade, like quiet time. And I saw this book, and I've always loved big books. I mean, the big family sagas mm-hmm. from, you know, Susan Howitch and uh, James Michener and Jeffrey Archer. I mean, those were like, I love those books. And all discovered, you know, while walking to the tube, there'd be a bookstore and I'd stop in and I'd get a big thick paperback and I could read them pretty quickly. But I saw this book Gone with the Wind and I'd never seen it before. And I asked her what it was. And there was three copies in the library and I immediately went and got one. I brought it home and my mother was like, you can't read that book. I'm like, okay, I'll return it. Of course I did not. I just had to read it in secret. And I, I just couldn't put it down. I couldn't do homework. I couldn't go to class. I basically, the only time I've ever played hooky in my life, because I'm such a straight arrow, <laughs> never, you know, now I'm not the kind of kid, you know, who would play hooky to, you know, smoke a cigarette. No, no, no. I play hooky so I could go up to the roof of Harley House and <laughs> reek out with the wind all day. <laughs> that is epic. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I, I just, I tore through it. I've read it like, I don't know, 12 times now. But, um, oh my gosh, I just, I couldn't. And it's really funny because I was searching online. I Googled Mick Jagger Harley House. And if you Google that, you'll see it. There's a picture, a famous photographer did a photo shoot of Mick Jagger while he lived at Harley House, and there is a picture of him on the roof in that spot where I read Gone with the Wind. That is so I know, cool. I know. Isn't that amazing? 
But y'all weren't there at the same time, were you? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know the exact days. I think he moved out the summer that we moved in. But uh, I do know so I babysat close. in the flat after he had left. And the baby's room was all soundproof. <laughs> you know, because I guess he used it for, you know, practice or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it had, you know, the little the styrofoam kind of, you yeah, know. The, the egg crate thing. Right, right. Very cool. So tell us about your journey to becoming a writer. A stupidity, really. Oh, I just. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I, I was a business major at Tulane. I, I'm glad, you know, I, I business, you can't ever go wrong with what they teach you in business school. It, yep. it still applies today. Um, even, you know, understanding what a spreadsheet is. You know, I, I had to do, remember Lotus 1, 2, 3? Yeah, I had to do that. Unfortunately. And then, and then database. I love that stuff. I Ugh. really did. You know, I had to take calculus and finance, though. Not so great. Um, I tell my husband now, he's a banker, so he thinks it's hilarious that um, if, if I haven't done it in years, but I used to be in charge of the checkbook and balancing it every month. And if it didn't balance, I would just reconcile it, you know, just like, it's fine. You know, we're just... We're missing like four digits here, but whatever, you yeah. know, and I would just kind of, and it just drove him crazy. He's like, oh my gosh. But now we have, you know, electronic banking and you can see exactly what you so have and better. what it's just, you know, so there's really no need to, as I tell him, there's no need to balance the checkbook. I can see, you know, as long as I have checks, that means we have money in the account, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> drives him nuts. Uh, but anyway, so yes, I was a business major, you know, so, so I, I, I worked in the business field for, for uh, quite some time, five years. And when I got pregnant with my daughter, I was an operations manager for an advertising, uh, excuse me, a software development company. And, um, you know, I was working 70 hours a week, mm-hmm. coming in on weekends and holidays just to kind of get ahead of the stuff. Because when you're an operations manager, you really have your finger in everybody's pie. I even, I was at the point, and, and this was, you know, back in the 80s, so in early 90s. And I remember, you know, because I worked with a bunch of guys with PhDs in aeronautical engineering from MIT because they were designing um, computer-aided design software for like NASA, Department of Defense, Uh Boeing. Mm -hmm. So it was very high Mm -hmm. tech and I'm not high tech, but I did learn, you know, if one of their computers went down, I was the one that had to make sure I would have to find a part. And like I learned how, this is in the days of hard drives. I could replace a processor. I could replace a hard drive and just steal parts from different computers. and, Mm -hmm. And that was just, you know, I hired the front office staff. I did all the, you know, ordering. I did, you know, personnel. It was crazy. I had, I literally, they hired um, four people after I left to do my job. (laughs) So that, that told me ahead of time that I'd be the perfect writer because as a, as an author, you know, writing the book is just a small piece of the pie. But anyway, so, um, and it just so happened that at the time I was about to leave on maternity leave, uh, my husband's job got transferred down to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I'd always w- planned on being a stay-at-home mom, so it just kind of worked. It So we moved uh, down to Atlanta, where we've now been for 27 years. My daughter was five weeks old when we moved, and mm-hmm. um, and we've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's sort of the journey. Um, so I didn't work. I That's when I really got back into my reading, because I mm-hmm. when I was working, I, I, I would read, you know, not voraciously like I had, but um, I would still be pretty consistent reader. I still love the books. I mean, how can you not? But you know, you're newlywed. You don't have kids. It, yeah. Your life is your own. <laughs> ha ha. Remember oh, those days? Wow. Oh my gosh. Long time it's ago. a very long time ago. And, um, 
Yeah, so when we moved to Atlanta, it was all about, and then my son was born, uh, let's see, nine, nine months after the storm of the century. So that was December of 93, oh. he was born. So I had two kids, 21 months apart. Um, so the 90s were like crazy time for me with the little kids chasing them around and, and all of that. And I guess around the time of the Olympics, the Atlanta Olympics in 96, I had read the series of books called Outlander by Diana Gabaldon, mm-hmm. and I was... It had been a long time since I'd had what we call a, a book hangover, and that's when you just cannot escape the characters or the yeah. setting, and you oh, just so you keep awesome. rereading and rereading. I had my husband take me to Scotland. <laughs> we had a lovely 10-day ten, ten vacation, uh-huh. left the ki- kids with my mom, and um, I just, oh, I just, and, and it spoiled me. I couldn't pick up, you know, I always have stacks of books to read, but I couldn't pick up another book to read. And because I was just every time I opened a book, I kept on seeing Jamie and Claire in Scotland. And, you know, that was, you know, Mm. so um, I just, you know, my whole life I'd had teachers saying, you should be a writer. You're so creative. But I hated writing. Really? Um, I did. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I my joke is the only, you know, I didn't even keep a diary. The only type of diary I kept was a a journal in high school and middle school to record what I wore to school each day. So I'd never repeat an outfit. Oh, my God. Karen. (laughs) For real. Yes. So sad. So sad. I was an only girl, okay? So I, you know, and oh, I when I lived in London, I was like the babysitter of, you know, the year uh, because I had a little brother and I loved to play with him and his friends. He was such a sweet kid and I loved his friends and I would take him to the park and play with them. So when they needed a babysitter, they always asked for me. Yeah. I would babysit like seven days a week. I had a lot of spending money and I spent it all on clothes. It was London. Come on. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so I, but, but I, you know, I would, if I, um, had a writing assignment, I would write and my teachers were like, oh my gosh, this is so creative, but F for penmanship. Cause these were the days before, you <laughs> She's know, not joking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and I, it wasn't until I learned how to type later in high school that I understood why my handwriting was so bad because I'm a writer. My stories in my head come out full fledged, fully, so and you know, and Right, I would try to write as quickly as I could to get mm-hmm. the ideas down, so I wouldn't forget them. And it was just so frustrating because I couldn't; my writing could not keep up with the ideas in my head. And I just found writing to be extremely frustrating for that reason, because um, my story would be on page two and my handwriting would be on paragraph two, and I would mm-hmm. lose so much. And it was just very, very frustrating, you know. And I would always average a C in my writing assignments because you know A for content, F for penmanship, and and which wasn't really fair. No. Um, but my teachers would always say, oh my gosh, you're so creative. You should be a writer. And I'd mm-hmm. go like, ugh, <laughs> never, never. And then um, when I learned how to type and I was typing, because I've played piano my whole life. So I have really good, high, ha- uh, good hand-to-eye coordination. And within two weeks of typing on a, learning to type on a manual typewriter, mm-hmm. I was typing like 98 words a minute with no mistakes. It was crazy. Yeah. So and all of a sudden I'm I was real, like, I'm a super fast typer too. And I learned, we learned old school, yes, you know, where yes, you don't look at the keys. Yes. And, and because I played piano, that's, that's how I, you know, you play mm-hmm. piano. You don't look down at your hands. Yeah. You, you know, look at the music. And, um, and finally I got it. It's like, oh, so this is how writing is supposed to be. But, you know, I still had absolutely no love for writing. Mm-hmm. It, writing is hard, you know, and it just, yeah. just it's like, it's like, 
opening up a vein every time I, you know, sit down at my computer. It's very pain. It is. It's very painful. <laughs> and, you know, you stare at that blank screen. It's like, okay, let me pull magic from the ether. It's like, that is not easy to do. No. It's, yes, I know being a neurosurgeon is very difficult too, but at least you have, you know, textbooks and stuff that you learned on how to do it. This is not, there's no learning for this. Yes. And um, yeah, technique you could learn, but you know, the actual creativity, that is something that mm. I don't know where it comes from. So anyway, I was, you know, I read these books. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, so I'd read these books by Dana Gabaldon and I just couldn't pick up another book to read. And I just, you know, heard the ghost of Mrs. Anderson, my sixth grade teacher, you should write, you should write. Like, oh, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I literally, like an idiot, just like, how hard can this be? Sat down one day at my computer and started writing my first book. And really? Then, yeah. And then I... And that was your goal? No, I just... I had, don't tell my children I said this, but I had zero goals. I never thought, A, that I would finish a book, B, that I would publish it, C, that I would ever be a New York Times bestselling author. Mm. I, I, and you know, and I have to say that it's, it's kept me humble even today as I start each book. Mm-hmm. That's the premise I start with. Yeah. I just want to tell a really good story. Oh, I want to write the kind of book that I would want to read. Mm-hmm. That is my end goal. Mm-hmm. And if... If a lot of people love it and want to read it and it puts me on the bestseller list, well, that's fabulous because that means my publisher will want to want me to write another book. So, you know, it's, it's all good. But yeah, when I first started writing that for, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I just wanted to tell a story and uh, I ended up um, entering that book in a contest where the uh, finalist judge was a New York um, literary agent. And I won the contest, and she offered to represent me. So she was my first agent. Oh, that's that's an amazing story in itself. Oh, it is. It because is. most people who are writers struggle for so long. Right. Right. No, I know. I know. I, I know. Mean, what a and it's not like, but I have to was. say, you know, I didn't start at the top of the heap. No, I well, had to climb you never my way. Do. It's <laughs> always about baby steps, is it not? It is. And, you know, and, 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 then, and that's step. why. And that's why, you know, especially in this, this business, it's all about, there's a lot of egos in this business. There's a lot of thin skin in this business. You can't be looking at what other people are doing. There are a lot mm-hmm. of big, remember Peter Benchley did Jaws. It's yeah. the only big book he ever did. Really? I yes. didn't realize that. Yeah. Margaret Mitchell, even, um, you know, Catherine Stockett, she did The Help. And I know she's been working mm-hmm. on that second book. But when your first book is such a huge success, Oh, the mind games your mind plays with you. Like, can I do this again? So in a way, and I think I, if my first book had been a huge success like that, I might have also fallen prey to that second book syndrome, as they call Mm -hmm. it, and still be struggling with my second book. You know, I, I, I totally get it, you know? Um, So in many ways, I'm grateful that, I mean, I started like at zero, (laughs) Because <laughs> my first two books were with a very small New York mm-hmm. publisher, an independent publisher, um, you know, still, you know, uh, um, uh, wasn't um, self-pubbed or anything. Mm-hmm. It was still a publisher, but they were small. Yeah. And, and how long ago was that? My first book came out in 2000, so 19 years ago, yeah, yeah when I was three. Mm-hmm. And you've written how many books? 25, since? yeah. That is amazing. Truly. I know. Well, and, and just stupidity because, you oh, know, stop. how hard can this be? Because <laughs> I don't know better. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cheering you on from the sidelines, I, I have a little glimpse into how hard you work. And life of a writer is 
it's hard work. I mean, you're yes. 70 hours a week. Yeah. Constantly. Seven days. Seven days a week. Constantly. Yeah. Year round. Yeah. And like you said, it's not just writing the book. No, it's it's the promotion. It's the, you know, it's the editing. It's the research. It's the... Uh, the book tour, the social media. The oh, yeah. The social media, which which is what I like to call the brain suck of the world. But (laughs) there's lots of good stuff with social media and there's times when I really enjoy it. But when I'm on deadline Mm. and my publisher's like, oh yeah, so we're running this promo. You need to, you know, share it across us. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? That's the last thing I'm thinking about right now. Or when Rena says, yeah, we have to do a video. I'm like, does that mean I have to wash my hair? You know, (laughs) because when I'm on deadline, it's not pretty. Um, yeah. And that's how I got you to do the podcast, because you didn't have yeah. to wash your hair, right? <laughs> and I'm in my pajamas right now, so <laughs> I'm not, but yeah, t-shirt, which... It's yeah. all good. It's all good. Well, let's let's talk about some of your books for, for those people who are not familiar with your work. How would you how would you describe your writing style? Tell us a little bit more about, about your style and the kind of books you write. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, the kind of books that I write are the kind of books I like to read, and that's always about a female protagonist who is at a crossroads in her life mm-hmm. where she's in a deep hole that she is either dug by herself or circumstances have put her in there and she's stuck at the bottom and she doesn't think she mm-hmm. can climb out. And then, you know, and I like to tell people when they expect their lives to change, you don't just wake up one morning and say, my life is going to change. Usually it's some external influence mm-hmm. that combines with your own inner strength to to help you start that climb and um you know it could be in my books I, I realize that I've used this more than once you know um a character inherits a house or inherits a child or or something you know that mm-hmm. that kicks them in the butt and yeah. uh you know gets them moving and 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 really kind of examining, self-examining, you know, and, and finding that strength that we all have, but mm-hmm. sometimes in dark times, you, you don't think you've, you have it. And, um, and I love exploring that because I think we've all in one way or another had, you know, those dark times where you just can't see your way through it. Yeah. And I like writing about women who can overcome that mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, um, and in the books that I like to read and write, there's always some mystery element. There's always some historical element. I love the way the past influences the present. Mm-hmm. And I love tying those two stories together. Sometimes I'll use the same character maybe as a child and then as an older person to sort of tie the mm-hmm. years together and the mystery together. Um, I love, you know, family, especially Southern families and Southern towns. I love, you know, making that the framework of my books. And I always have a little bit of a love story because, you know, I'm a romantic at heart. I like to have that. But my books aren't romances. They're not historical fiction. Um, You know, they're not mysteries. They have those elements. My books, um, I call them Southern women's fiction because Mm -hmm. my characters are always from the South or they move South. Um, it's always about her journey. So they're women's journey stories. And uh, although I have to say uh, a lot of men enjoy my books as well, which I, I think the historical element and my, my guy characters always, you know, strong, strong men. They're not alpha males, but um, you know, they're good foils for the strong heroines that I create. And then about 10 years ago, I came up with um, an idea. I was literally taking a shower and a character of Melanie Milton hit me upside the head and mm. And I was like, whoa, who is this? And and it turns out she's this 39-year-old <laughs> OCD um, uh, realtor from Charleston. 
who specializes, uh, she makes her living selling um, historic real estate in Charleston, Mm -hmm. but she hates old houses because she can see dead people. And old houses always have um, spirits who need her help solving a mystery. And of Mm. course, her sidekick in the first book, she inherits an old house. Oh, yeah. And um, that she calls a goiter on her neck initially. You know, she comes (laughs) to love it because I'm an old house hugger. So um, it hurt. It hurt for me to write some of some of her character. Um, But um, when she inherits the house, she realizes that this really good looking um, guy, uh, he's a best selling author of true crime mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, And he is writing a book about the disappearance of a woman who had lived in her house um, around uh, uh, prohibition. And so of course, you know, they get they work together to solve that mystery, and that's the first book. So the rest of the series, the first so book in the series. So there, there will be seven books. The sixth book, the Trad Street series. Sorry, the Trad Street series. <laughs> the sixth book in the Trad Street series, which is called "The Christmas Spirits on Trad Street," um, will come out October twenty second. There will be one more in the series, but the whole series mm. basically centers so around. So fantastic! It sounds so like fantastic. oh, these are ghost stories, but they're not. All of my books, and these books too, they're all about the characters. They're very, all of my books are character driven. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of plot going on. I mean, you know, the beech trees, we have Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Camille. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great backdrop, but that's not, it's the characters and how they react to their situations. And all of my books are about that. And the Trad Street series are no different. You know, Melanie and, and Jack, they, they're really, she, Melanie is, you know, it, when we meet her in the first book, she is really lost and struggling. She's um, estranged from both her parents. She has like one friend, and her life <laughs> is her job. Yeah. And um, but you know, and but then as you get to to know her, you understand why she is the way she is. You know, her mother abandoned her when she was six, and you understand why um, mm-hmm. because we get to meet her mother later on in the series. Um, and her father was an alcoholic, and he was the one who raised her. So she became the parent at a very young oh. age, and and to control her environment. That's why she pretty much became OCD because. Mm-hmm. Everything in her life was so out of control, and that was her reaction to it. And so she's, it's kind of funny, you know, and, and I, I, I do kind of poke fun at her a little bit because she's a fun character. Um, and there's some real laugh out loud, loud moments, and much more totally. so than my other books. But um, there's also some serious stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the theme of alcoholism is in there and how different characters um, handle it and deal with it. And, you know, and, 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 but that's the joy of this series to see these characters learn and grow. And of course the cast of characters grows and grows and grows, um, with, you know, additional family members and, and relationships. And, um, it's just really fun. I always look forward to, you know, starting the next book and like, okay, who's coming onto the scene in this book and who's going to be the main focus, but it's all, you know, Melanie's growth. The entire series is about uh, Melanie's journey, um, in, in, in her, you know, finding her own strength and learning to trust others um, and not just rely on herself. So, oh, It's so much fun to watch people anticipate the next book. Oh, yeah. They'll read, the, they'll read this book like in one day and then it'll come out on the 22nd <laughs> and on the 23rd I'll have like, you know, 6,000 emails. When's the next one? <laughs> which is, which is flattering, but I'm like, just read it again. You must have missed some stuff. You read it so fast. <laughs> it just took me a year to write. Could you just take a little more time to read it, please? <laughs> yeah, and I've heard you say... These books 
really are are fairly easy for you to write. I think uh, the story. Yeah, I would. I would never say a book is easy to write, but I will say that every time I start one of these books, because I'm not starting with a blank page, mm-hmm. I have certain givens. I know what the setting is. It's Charleston, South Carolina. I know the main characters, mm-hmm. Melanie and Jack, and I know their. You know the second, pretty much all the secondary characters. Again, I will add introduce new ones, mm-hmm. but those are the givens. Um, so that, you know, not starting every book with a blank page is huge. Yes. Plus I have her backstory now. I have six, when I start the seventh book, I will have six books of her character development. I mean, if I could have that with every book, my life would be so much easier. And speaking of backstory, Trad Street, is there a recurring character? Oh, gee. (laughs) So remember I mentioned my sister-in-law, Claire. Yeah. So she married Rich Cobalt, who my husband and Rich Cobalt are like two peas from the same pod. It's almost frightening. Um, You know, when we get together, we love playing games together. You know, all the families. And when the kids were little, we would put them to bed and then we'd go play our games. And, you know, Trivial Pursuit and Pictionary and all of that. And I remember once they were at our house in Atlanta (laughs) and the kids were all upstairs supposedly sleeping and we were playing Pictionary and um, it was always, you know, Claire and me versus Tim and Rich and the, uh, it was their turn and either Rich or Tim, they just draw like a little, a little crooked line and the other one goes alfalfa and that was it. (laughs) So, I mean, they, they have the, the same, same brain, brain cells. It's just scary, really, you know. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, so so Rich is a huge jokester. There's the whole coleslaw saga that one day I'll have to put in a book because it's, it's just so hilarious. So, anyway, I just thought, you know, well, okay. So, I have to give a little bit of thing about the, the coleslaw. We, we sneak coleslaw into each other's houses all the time, like, without them knowing. It'll come in, like, in a gift basket or... Um, <laughs> Once at Thanksgiving, I put it inside the turkey. I mean, it's just, you know, and then you're it. It's like tag, you're it. So we have to get more and more and more more creative. So it was our turn. And I'm like, oh, what can I do? And I'm like, oh, I'm an author. I can create things. So I introduced a character in the Trad Street series. I think in the first book, yeah. Rich Cobalt. He's the handyman (laughs) contractor. He always has low-slung pants in the back. (laughs) That exposes a little much, too much for Melanie's taste. Um, She's always, like, buying him suspenders for Christmas and stuff and to hold those pants up. But um, I have him in that. I I think it's the first or the second book I have him eating a coleslaw sandwich because that was like, aha, gotcha. Like, try to top that. that. That so, is really um, good. But he's now very popular. He's the recurring character. Um, and he's just really, really fun to write. So, <laughs> And he's totally, he's totally okay with it. But I love sticking his name in pretty much every book. So he's the handyman contractor in Trad Series. But in the other books, you'll see him popping up. He's like a used car salesman. He's a um, human resource director in another book. He's... Uh, tow truck driver in one book. I mean, he's everywhere. So he's fun. That is, that is so fun. As, and as we make our way to the release of the Christmas Spirits on Trad Street, so fun. Yes. You're going to be in Charleston. I will be in Charleston. Yeah. October. And a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. Go to my website, tour. check that out. But yeah. Yeah, it's a full page. Yeah, most stuff. definitely. And this is what they're calling a, an abbreviated tour. Uh-uh. Yeah. I've been, I've had two pagers before. I oh, know, but that's like 
packed full page tour for sure. Okay, well, let's kind of transition. Oh, well, before oh, we move on from writing. What? Well, I was going to say, because then I'm on book tour again in January. Yeah, for? for my other project. So mm-hmm. I do a collaboration with my amazing friends and best-selling authors, Lauren Willig and Beatrice Williams, yeah. who are, you know, best-selling authors in their own right. And one day, um, it might have been in a hotel bar, we got <laughs> together and we were like, we should write a book together. And so we did. And that was The Forgotten Room. Mm. Um, I, it was, you know what people are saying, why are you, you know, you're each successful in your own right. Why would you do this? And, you know, I have to say it really, for me, it sparks that writing passion, Mm -hmm. um, to be writing with two other authors you really love and respect. Um, it's just, it's the most fun you could possibly have writing, um, a book um, and it's nice, too, because we do plan these books. My other books, I don't plan. Uh, but these you have to because you're writing with two other people. And we each take a character and time setting, and then we write mm-hmm. it. Um, and it's just it's just a lot of fun. And plus, you know, the planning, we go to some horrible place like, you know, Palmetto Bluff, and there may be spas <laughs> involved. Um, yes. And and we do all that. We outline the book. And then, you know, we go on separate ways. And we there's a lot of emailing back and forth. We write round robin. And then we get together at some other horrible place, like, you know, a beach house in Florida and uh, where there may be a pool. And, um, you know, then we finish hashing it out and um, turn it into our editor. And then um, we go on book tour together, which is what we call is just really the only the real reason why we write these books. So we can go on a a publisher paid um, (laughs) girls trip. (laughs) But um, yeah, so the first book was The Forgotten Room. It hit the New York Times hardcover list, which is very exciting. Um, And the next book was The Glass Ocean, also very successful and popular and um and then the the next book that comes out in january is all the ways we said we say goodbye and that's three storylines all connected by the paris ritz so we have world war one world war two and 1960s so very very i love this story i love the characters i think i've loved the other two books that we Mm -hmm. collaborated on but this i think is our best so far (sighs) Cannot wait for that to come out. I and can't release wait for day book tour. is January. Do we have a date? date January fourteenth, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's going to be cold though. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> I know. Don't worry. I already bought my winter coat. So. <laughs> yeah, and I love your books. I always learn so much. So historical fiction, you do a ton of research to make sure every little thing is accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because somebody out there is going to write me if I get it wrong. <laughs> because it's funny, even when I when I do the research and I know I've got it right, I still get people writing to me saying I've got it wrong. And then I just pull out my piece of research and say, actually, because, yeah. you know, I spend so much time with the research and it really bugs me when people like, and they get very upset. Mm-hmm. Like, how could you be so ignorant? I'm like, well, actually, I wasn't being ignorant. This yeah. is actual fact. And yeah. So there's all of that in writing historical fiction. Right. So much research mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, it's accurate in right. addition to the character development. Right. So right. and yeah, doing their character arcs in both time periods and Yeah, and oh I, I don't know how you keep all of that straight because I don't either. I'm losing my mind. It's no, you're not. <laughs> what was there is it's not not there as much anymore. Oh. <laughs> You have a beautiful, beautiful writing style, and uh, it's just a pleasure to to read your work. 
Okay, girlfriend. Well, I know you need to get going. I have one last question for okay. you. So the, the word relevate means to uplift or inspire. Mm-hmm. So in closing, what might you say to my listeners about kind of what you do as a writer or any closing words of encouragement? You know, I would say never underestimate your impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I'm writing in, you know, in the privacy of my home, I, I don't truly understand the impact of my words. And I get so many lovely letters from people. One of my favorites was more recently of, of, a, of a woman, she and her mother were big fans of mine. And when her mother was dying um, and in hospice care that she asked her daughter to read aloud from one of my books. And she says that was one of her uh, fondest memories uh, with her mom of, you know, saying goodbye to her mom was sharing uh, something they both loved, which was reading in my books. And I was, you know, how many people can say they can touch absolute strangers in such a profound way? No, and just don't ever underestimate that you are working in a bubble and nobody sees or appreciates what you do. That's so important because it feels like that a lot. It does. You feel like you're slogging. The work is hard. The work is hard. The the journey is long. And then, and then you see those little winks in your life and those little pinpricks of light. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Karen White, you are a joy and a talent. And I'm so glad to call you my friend and to be able to, to share this time together. Thank you. Hang in there, sister. Thanks. Sell some books. Yeah, really. (laughs) (laughs) So many good nuggets shared from Karen for this episode. Don't underestimate the impact of your life. Make time to laugh and have fun. Do whatever it takes to get the job done or get the book written. Get lost in a good book. It's good for the soul. And if it's a Karen White novel... Be prepared to laugh, cheer, and cry. A good plot line for a book and life itself. Wouldn't you agree? I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.